just thinking about uh, the connections in the community of faith. Uh, when I was a brand new Young Life staff person in Miami back in the late 70s and early 80s, on the board uh, the, the, that supported me, that made my job possible, were John and Ann Rose. And I had no idea that Ann was from this church. I had never attended this church before. I wasn't even Presbyterian then. So, uh, let's see if I can get this is on, just not very audible. Okay. Anyway, so I'm looking forward to seeing Anne. I haven't seen her in many, many years. So, uh, this morning, uh, you may, I'm sure you caught the big news about the new class of inductees into baseball's Hall of Fame, right? Remember? Okay. <laughs> of course. That's how Debbie lives. She lives for those announcements. And uh, so, um, I, actually, I can't remember who was voted in, but I do, it did call to mind some of my childhood memories of baseball. And uh, uh, when I was a, a, a youngster, one of my childhood heroes was Mickey Mantle. And believe it or not, I was a New York Yankee fan for a short time. And God has purged me of that, but back then, I loved Mickey Mantle. He was great. He was known as a five-tool baseball player. You, can you name those five tools? He could, he could hit for average. He could hit for power. He could run. He could field. And he could throw. He could do it all. And he was amazing. He was my hero. And I... Then I read a book about him, a biography about him, and I realized, well, he kind of, he had some personal problems. Uh, yeah, I mean, he came from kind of a tough family situation and had some adult issues uh, during and after baseball. So, kind of tarnished my image of Mickey Mantle, still a great player, but, you know, that's kind of what happens when you, when you study your heroes, and I think today's text from the Gospel of Luke uh, gave Jesus' contemporaries a chance to see him in a new light. And although they started out revering him, they ended up uh, with not such a high view. At least they were, they were confused and, and of different opinions about him. And so I thought, well, maybe today as we look at this text, we'll we'll see how we feel about this view of Jesus, a prophetic Jesus. And uh, maybe we'll ask some questions in our community and may maybe we can think together about some risky issues that Jesus brings up. I think it's a, this could and I hope, hopefully is a safe place for conversations about the meaning of our faith in today's world. If we can't do it here, where else could we do it? So let us listen first to the word of God. It comes to us from the Gospel of Luke. It's the lectionary reading for today. And it's from the message translation. Let us listen. Jesus returned to Galilee, powerful in the spirit. He was returning after being tested in the desert. News that he was back spread throughout the countryside. He taught in their meeting places to everyone's acclaim and pleasure. 
He came to Nazareth where he had been reared. As he always did on the Sabbath, he went to the meeting place. And when he stood up to read, he was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Unrolling the scroll, he found the place where this is written. God's spirit is on me. God has chosen me to preach the message of good news to the poor, sent me to announce pardon to prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the burdened and battered free, to announce this is God's year to act. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the assistant, sat down, and every eye in the place was on him. And then he continued, You've just heard scripture make history. It came true just now in this place. And all who were there watching and listening were surprised at how well he spoke. I guess they had low expectations. But they, were all, they also said, isn't this Joseph's son, the one we've known since he was a boy? Jesus answered, I suppose you're going to quote the proverb, Doctor, go heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we've heard you did in Capernaum. Well, let me tell you something. No prophet is ever welcome in his hometown. Isn't it a fact that there were many widows in Israel at the time of Elijah during the three and a half years of drought when the famine devastated the land? But only, the only widow to whom Elijah was sent by God was in Sidon. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha. But the only one that was cleansed was Naaman, the Syrian. That set everyone in the meeting place seething with anger. They threw him out and banished him from the village. And they took him to a mountain cliff at the edge of the village to throw him to his doom. But he gave them the slip and was on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the trouble with prophets is they cause a lot of trouble. They're troublemakers. They usually show up uninvited. They stick their nose where it doesn't belong into matters of finance and politics and foreign affairs with what? No credentials. All they've done usually is read their Bible and go to church. They come to committee meetings and gum up the works with difficult moral questions. But often they end up acting impolite and embarrassing, politically incorrect immoderate in their positions, impractical in their outlook. Was Jesus a prophet? You better believe he was. Just think about what Jesus did in the story that Steve told last week. Going to the temple in Jerusalem and overturning tables of the money changers, upsetting the system that was there. That was a public prophetic act. In Luke, Jesus is called a prophet like Moses. Not a prophet like a fortune teller, 
like a future predictor, but a prophet of God, a prophet who claimed the authority of speaking for God. That's some chutzpah. And in doing so, calling the people back into covenant relationship. That's what a prophet did. The, the, he or she would call people back into that covenant relationship that they were drifting away from. As Luke tells it, after dropping numerous hints through miraculous births and angels and shepherds and visions, Jesus pulls back the curtain on his own ministry when he's about 30 years old. He goes to his hometown and he's handed the scroll. He reads from the book of Isaiah and in Luke's telling, he is taking on the mantle of this great prophet. And at the center of the prophet's word is it's hearkening back to the Exodus and to Deuteronomy where there is this vision from God that curbs economic transactions in a way that makes the community more sane. It restores everyone to a proper place in the economy because life in the community of faith doesn't consist on accumulation, but on rather on sharing wealth. It was called the Jubilee. Every seventh year in Exodus, every 50th year in Deuteronomy, you had a special time where the people would give back the land and the property to those who originally owned it. You must give it back. Even though you may have come upon it legally, it is properly yours, you have all of the papers, you must give it back because in the end it isn't yours, it is theirs. And so the start for this movement in the economy and in the society that would bring people back into kind of a social equality was always, it was always sounded by a trumpet. The, word, the Hebrew word for trumpet is yalbal, from which we get the word jubilee. There was jubilation, a huge celebration as things returned back to the way they ought to be. The trumpet sounds, the signal is given, and everyone starts canceling debts and returning property. Now, that is quite a difficult vision to enact, and there are different uh, evaluations of how well Israel ever did follow through on that. But when Jesus read from Isaiah, hearkening back to Deuteronomy, the congregation knew exactly what he was talking about, and they were so pleased that he was reading this, whether he had chosen it or whether it was given to him. But then he went too far, as prophets often do. He, he just didn't know when to stop because he said, today this is happening in your midst. It's happening now, here. And of course the people weren't ready for that. And so they started questioning him. Who do you think you are? Where did this guy come from? And Jesus confronts 
their religious worldview that wants to keep things exactly as it is by reminding them that in their own scriptures, in their own national epic, there are stories of how God broke through barriers and God's grace and mercy blessed people from outside the the inner community, people that weren't the rule followers. The grace of God could not be owned by Israel. And that story, after they heard that, led them to the edge of a cliff where they wanted to do Jesus in. You could say the story was a cliffhanger. So, quiet over here. Okay. (laughs) The gospel always, no matter how good it is, no matter how full of love we know it is, always also involves some level of resistance. There is resistance in this story. You see, the the people first resisted this idea of a jubilee. The jubilee was not some pious, good intention or spiritual idea. It was a concrete, material, economic act. It is about money and property being transferred. It's a preoccupation of money and property that is central to the biblical faith. Yes, the good news of God's love for us and peace with God and abundant life, these ideas are certainly personal. They are more than an idea or a philosophy. There's a deeply personal dimension to our faith in the good news. But there's more to a biblical and a prophetic faith. Our faith is never private. It's never concerned only with personal salvation, personal peace, and reconciliation. So what the text in Luke is doing is telling us that this year of the Lord's favor involves Freedom for the oppressed, the the ones who were in debt, who were in jail because they couldn't pay back their debts. To let the poor go back into the economy with all of their opportunity to survive and thrive. And then Jesus says, today we want to begin now. What he meant was, what Isaiah wrote about, I'm going to enact it. And so... He set about giving the poor social power and social access. And they were filled with rage. And that's why they wanted to kill him. They didn't want to hear about a jubilee in their time that would curb their accumulation. Even for this wonder boy, Jesus, come home, that was too much. The second reason that there is resistance in this story is because when Jesus started talking about the wideness of God's mercy, it was offensive. It was a challenge 
to their religious view of God that they believed that there were certain ways of understanding God's grace and who's in and who's out. And they didn't like this idea of a wide, a wide available goodness and grace. Recently, I was at the Montreal College Conference, and the theme of that conference was compassionate community. And a part of the teaching of the conference for the, the kids was to ask them to think about how they define their community. Who is in it and who's not in it? How big is your compassionate community? Could it be drawn larger? And so one of the speakers was an Islamic professor from Chicago who talked about his work in interfaith relationships and how he is helping people see the common humanity in our faiths as we share together. And the kids were asked, do you have a friendship with one Islamic person? Do you know one person of the Islamic faith personally well enough that you could say you're friends? Do you understand them and their faith from their point of view? And then a little later in the week, there was a visit by a group of women from the nearby state penitentiary. And these women spoke about briefly about why they had been put in prison, in their cases, for quite a long, long time, for serious crimes. But what they really talked about was how God was working in their lives. And the kids were challenged to, to think about, would you have one of these women as a friend? Do you know, do you have a friend who has been in prison? I mean really in prison for a serious crime. How big is your circle of compassionate community. The prophetic Jesus was confronting his listeners with that question, just as our college kids were asked at Montreal. The third kind of resistance that we see in this story is directly to Jesus. They knew him. They saw him grow up and coming to children's messages in the synagogue year after year. They knew what, he, what his good and bad habits were and what his family was like. There were no secrets in a little village. And yet, here he comes, all big and mighty, grown up, thinking he can speak for God. What in the world? And talking to us about economic reform, and how we're supposed to relate to outsiders, you better believe there's some resistance there. And so, they, they felt that they knew this Jesus. They didn't have anything more to learn. And the ultimate resistance to him was, of course, the cross. That's what happens to prophets. Ultimately, you know, the resurrection brought about a prophetic community. We, we read about it in the rest of the New Testament, a community that began, in some places at least, to practice 
a new economy of sharing, a new openness to outsiders, and the courage to confront the civil government. Now, we know there's a cost for something like that. There's a cost for sharing, for welcoming, for confrontation. It's not always comfortable or popular. I mean, look what happened to Colin Kaepernick. He got banned pretty much from the NFL for for standing up in a prophetic way. Look what's happened to many women who have stood up in the Me Too movement and the way they're labeled. Prophets pay a price. But usually they don't worry too much about being moderate or nuanced or balanced. What they focus on is calling out what is wrong and calling for change. Calling for a return to right relationships in the covenant of God. So, I would think now would be a time for us to consider here at Riverside the prophetic Jesus. Sooner or later, we're going to have to confront this aspect of him. Not just the good shepherd Jesus, not just the great teacher or the sacrificial lamb, but the one who stands in the public square and calls out what is wrong and calls people back to God's faithful way. The question of public policy has nothing to do in Scripture with left or right, with Republican or Democrat, even with a capitalist or a socialist form of economy. It has to do with our deep conviction that our society is increasingly becoming a jungle of fear. And it will keep on that way until we think seriously about what it means to be good neighbors. Every family I know lives partly with an intricate balance of debt management. We manage the debts of old wounds, old angers, old resentments, habits. In our family, we, 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 we're pretty good at keeping score. If somebody takes that last piece of pie, it's remembered, okay? There, that's a debt that will get repaid, I promise. Now, we, we all have a way of, of needing jubilee. Jubilee is a chance in our families to break old cycles of resentment and hurt so that when the trumpet sounds, debts are forgiven and sins are pardoned and newness can come close to home beyond even our expectations. But as a church, as a church, if the signal were to sound, if if Dave Tuttle were to blow the trumpet and RPC were to be in the position of hearing that the Jubilee is come, what would be our position? You know, we have a, quite an opportunity in our Presbyterian and in our city because of our size 
our wealth, our vision, our history, our compassion, our spirit. We're respected by many people. And now I think our church is at a place where perhaps it can think of a future of moving out in some new ways. Thinking of deep and bold gestures of jubilee. Costly enough and significant enough to impact the city. Not something safe and modest and in-house, but something that gives back to our city enough that will make reconciliation possible in fresh and exciting ways. I think this is the prophetic business of the church. And I pray that we'll be willing to consider this aspect of our hero. Amen.